Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of God. In the early 1980s, three Catholic scholars met together for a series of conversations where the topic was compassion. They wound up writing a book about the things that they've talked about, and one of the questions that they raised early on in the book was whether or not society was growing in compassion and what effects uh, certain aspects of society were having on us. And so one of the questions they raised was mass communication. So television, newspapers, magazines, radio, uh, putting us in touch with what is going on in the world in new and deeper ways, including what's wrong in the world, would that stir us to greater compassion to address the needs of the world? And here's one of the things that they uh, said as they raised that question. We might ask, however, whether mass communication directed to millions of people who experience themselves as small, insignificant, powerless individuals does not in fact do more harm than good. When there is no community that can mediate between world needs and personal responses, The burdens of the world can only be a crushing burden. When the pains of the world are presented to people who are already overwhelmed by the problems of their small circle of family or friends, how can we hope for a creative response? What we can expect is the opposite of compassion, numbness and anger. So now, 40 years later, we have a new means of communication, social media. It's good because it's connecting us socially, and so we're more in tune with what's happening in one another's lives and what's happening in the world, but that means we're also in tune with even more things that are going on in the world that are troubling. Now, that's potentially good to be made aware of what the issues are, so we, by being connected, can address them. The question is, do those connections create the kind of community that's growing us in the ability to respond, or as the question was raised in the 1980s, are we stirring a direction towards numbness or towards anger? And so let's look around. You know, a few years into, uh, we're on the other side of COVID, but, but all of the various social issues that, that came up, are, are we in a better posture to actively attack them? Or are we starting to say, you know what? <laughs> uh, every issue is so big and overwhelming, let me just make sure that I get my retirement plan together. Uh, So that's the numbness, or are we saying we're tired of trying to address these things and we're we're growing 
weaker in love and compassion. So what is it that's going to energize us? Well, the only force that keeps us going seems to be anger. So is the current anger, which is appropriate, and are being in tune with social issues, which is good, is it stirring us to respond to the issues in a way that will resolve them? Or are we in a better posture to, to fight and do enough damage in trying to resolve issues that even where we make progress, the cost is too high? Well, this is a question that's relevant for the church because since the resurrection of Jesus for 2,000 years, the world has been uh, greatly flawed and the church has been called to be a mediating community in the world between God and human beings to continue to try to stay the course of loving and serving people. And yet, even in a gathering of the church, we could admit some of us are feeling the apathy. We're just tired. Our own problems are big enough. How could we worry about our neighbors? Or we're getting angry enough that we'll, we'll show up if there's a fight, but we're not going to show up to bring a meal because that seems less important at the time. Um, we are finishing today, uh, a couple, we've been looking for a couple of months at a sermon series on five core Christian practices that our church organizes around, and the fifth is mission. So you raise the question, Jesus comes and says, follow me, and part of that good news, I will, I will uh, join my life with you, you will have forgiveness, you will have hope, all of these things in following him. Um, why doesn't he quickly lead us out of our troubled lives in this troubled world? Well, one angle on that is Jesus leaves us here to continue to invite people. So that's one aspect of mission, to hear God's invitation, come and join with him. Uh, but the other is to address suffering in the world to some degree. So last week we looked at Matthew 4, where Jesus' ministry begins and it says he was proclaiming and teaching and he was healing afflictions. So last week we looked at, at the proclaiming and teaching as the, as the first order of, of the church going out and inviting and welcoming and teaching and encouraging. Um, but this week we're gonna highlight that second aspect of Jesus going around and healing affliction, that one of the reasons the church is left in the world is not simply to be a witness to God and his goodness, but to embody and enact it out so that uh, practical needs to some degree are being addressed by a mediating community. There's God, there's the world, and there's all of our troubles. And if God is going to be at work in the world, uh, God is at work through his church. And so today, we're going to look at a passage that, that brings us into a frustrating moment as the church is growing. The church is growing quicker than they're able to do the work that they need to do. And it's actually a frustrating moment. And so it's helpful for us to note that because... If we want to be in the world for the good of the world, when you think about it, it's quite exciting. When you go back, when you go out into the world with all of its troubles and you start to connect them and experience them, then it wears you down. What is it that's going to keep us going? Well, we have to, to recognize um, part of following Jesus is a call to suffer, to experience frustration and yet to bring grace into those situations. So we're gonna begin with frustration, but, but frustration in this passage leads to a new kind of organizing, a new organization that then leads to multiplication. So we begin with frustration, but then the, the church solves the problem with, with a measure of organization, and then we see in the book of Acts, the gospel continues to grow, there's multiplication. So I'm just gonna walk us through that. We're beginning with frustration because in verse one, there's a complaint. So here's the Christian community. And despite all that we might be able to find that's good, 
the focus of this passage is something that's not good. Now, in these days, verse 1, when the disciples were increasing in numbers, so this is good, right? Uh, more people are, are hearing the gospel, they're believing, they're joining this community. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. So that word against, not a good word in a community, right? Now there are two sides, and one is against the other. Uh, against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the word widow, this is not good. We live in a world where death still continues. Neglect, not a good word within a community. So there's a complaint, there's neglect. We're turning against one another. This is the church. You know, these days we think if we could only go back to the first century when we had the pure church. We have the pure church who is complaining because people are neglected. And we're finding that, that um, the problem is because of a good reason. The disciples are growing, uh, but they're not able to manage the resources such that it's being shared. And so they have the heart to care for the widows, um, but these 12 apostles are unable to continue to do it. And so the frustration, the inability to deliver reveals a bias in the community. So it's not simply that some were neglected, but they recognize a pattern. The Hellenists are being neglected. Now, this first century community in Jerusalem, everyone is Jewish, and presumably everyone in view here are ethnic Jews who believe Jesus was the Messiah, but uh, first century Jews had a complicated history that for uh, hundreds of years ago there was an exile, and what it meant is that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were scattered around what's now the Roman Empire, and since the time of Alexander the Great, they're Greek-speaking. You can see Alexander's influence even today. There's a very popular play uh, about Alexander the Great. Is that Alexander Hamilton? I might be confusing my uh, Alexanders here. Well, there was a great Alexander who uh, brought the, the Greek-speaking language. And so now you have these Jews whose first language is Greek. And as they get older, one of the, one of the theories of what's going on in here that historians put together, they imagine Jews out in the diaspora thinking, I want to die in Jerusalem. So you, you'd have an older couple who would come and spend their last years in Jerusalem, and then one of them dies, and in the, in the first century, if the husband dies, uh, what, is the, what are the supports for an older woman who wasn't able to work, who now doesn't have her children around? So you see, when Paul writes uh, to Timothy uh, at another part in the Bible, he's talking about... Um, trying to think within the, the category of widows. Are there widows whose families can support them? Well, the Hellenists might not have had those supports. And so is this a pride issue for the Hebrew speakers? We're more authentically Jewish because we were here and therefore we have first rights. Is it a resentment of we were here all along and you're coming and you're taking our resources? You could imagine this community like our own community. Whatever goes wrong with us was going wrong with them. And so they're divided. And so rather than saying, what's wrong with you, why are you complaining, or actually it's not really important to feed people, the apostles recognize there's a priority. We've been given a ministry of the word to invite people, to instruct people, and yet we're overwhelmed with the need to also care for people. So we're not going to choose between them. We need to figure out a way to solve this problem. So we began our series in Acts 2. Because that's one of the places you can see these five core practices working itself out. Now, Acts 2 is a 
climactic point in the Bible where the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. And if you're following the story of the Bible, it's a moment where the promises of God are being realized in a profound way. And so the Christian community in Acts 2 is the kind of community we want. They're generous. They're rejoicing. They have favor and a good reputation with their neighbors. People want to join them. And in that, the passage we began, the verses that began, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the Bible, to the fellowship, to sharing in each other's lives, to the breaking of bread, which presumably they did in the remembrance of Jesus, the sacraments, and to the prayers. And the Lord was adding daily to their number those who were being saved, to the mission of the church. Those five things. In Acts 2, those five things are done naturally, joyfully. It's contagious. We have moments like that. We have great seasons in church life. But we also have seasons where we, we get a little bit overwhelmed and we're a bit busy and we're a bit frustrated and we're neglecting one another. And then you start to realize that maybe you're being neglected in ways that others are not being neglected. And this is real church life. This happens. We have to know how to exist in these periods, which is not to turn against one another or to give up and say it's not important to care for one another or I'm just going to leave this community. Christianity is not working. But what do you do if you believe that the gospel really is the means of health and healing and growth? Well, uh, what they did was they sought to address the frustration. We're reading a summary of it, but this did not happen in one hour that, that a complaint was filed and then a solution was answered. It was an evolving, growing problem, a daily problem. And it's helpful uh, for the 21st century church just to know that frustration is part of Christian community. Neglect should not be part of Christian community. We don't accept that as a standard. But we don't become surprised when somehow things are breaking down for seasons, when our biases are exposed, that for all that we say about the value of all of humanity, we find that a particular community is just blind to certain people and their needs. And so that's part of church life is to see these things and to prayerfully draw near to God so that God would bring us through that on the other side of frustration there might be growth, there might be solutions. Um, Paul, who is called later than this moment as an apostle, but he writes to the Galatian churches because they were having some frustration. It was theological in nature. But I'm highlighting uh, just something from that book because of how Paul writes to them that, the, that what they need to deal with their frustration is grace. So the book of Galatians, six chapters, saying, look, when we get frustrated, if we try to double down on the rules, on the law, on our old identity, whatever these things are, we're going to make things worse. And so if things aren't working and we're frustrated, uh, we need to draw near to God. We need to double down on belief in the gospel. We need to walk in the spirit and experience grace. But you can see a theme throughout the book of Galatians. I'll just highlight the very beginning and the end, chapter 1 and chapter 6. In chapter 1, Paul is saying, I have this calling as an apostle. And the calling is to preach the gospel and to gather people. And, and he says, the other apostles were skeptical about me because formerly I persecuted the church, but they saw the spirit at work in me in my ministry. And so they welcomed me to, to go out to the nations in the mission of God and welcome them. But in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, it says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So Paul knew that as he went to announce and to invite and to call people to faith, that part of it was also um, to be building a community that 
that acknowledge the suffering. And then in chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So Paul addresses uh, the Galatian situation, which was different than the Acts 6 situation, but it was similar in that we're turning against one another, we're frustrated. Who's better than the others? What rules do we keep? And Paul's saying, for, for the church to be a long-haul force for good, we need to walk in the Spirit, we need to believe in grace, and out of that, we welcome people and we serve. And so, right now, our world appears to be more frustrated than certain periods of time. Our church is experiencing maybe less connection than normal, and so we are vulnerable to this kind of frustration. Some of it may be self-pitying and wrong. Some of it is because there's genuine neglect. There's bias. It's coming out. What we need to do is exist in the frustration and say, well, well, how by the gospel, by the Spirit of God, do we get through this? And so that moves us into the next section. I'm going to talk about organization. So one aspect of what happens is, is a, uh, a response which is just wise, which is if, if, if the nature of the problem is we're growing quicker than we could respond to needs, well, then we need to organize. The answer to the church's problems are not in organization for organization's sake. What they're seeking to do is to walk by the Spirit. And so you see that that's the criteria. Let's raise up leaders who have the evidence of the working of the Spirit. But with that in mind, how can we structure things so that we're fair, so that we're effective? And so in verses 2 to 4, it says the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So there's 12 apostles. The word apostle just speaks of their being messengers. They were unique. Jesus gathered 12 to himself to see everything he did, to hear all of his teaching, and, and he told them before he left, he said, I will send my spirit to bring to mind everything so that you will be my appointed witnesses. Jesus didn't write anything for us. He didn't remain for the next hundred years to make sure the church got it. He called his apostles and then sent them into the world, which is why when we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, we do so by reading the Bible. But they now had that task of bearing witness to all that Jesus said and did, and yet it was natural for them to be responding to needs, but now the need is so great that they're not doing the work that they're uniquely called to. So when they say it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, they're not saying serving tables is beneath us. Don't you know we're the apostles? Who's going to serve us? They would have been there when Jesus knelt down in John's gospel and washed their feet and said, this is the nature of your calling. That waiting tables, there was nothing embarrassing about that, but washing people's feet, <laughs> that's the work you give themselves to. The apostles weren't creating a hierarchy where they benefited from the others. They recognized if we're doing this work which needs to get done, nobody's doing the work that we're uniquely called to. So is there not a whole body of people filled with the Spirit who can share in this work? Verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven... I'm not going to take time, but the 12 and the 7 numbers seem to be significant in the Bible. Uh, pick up out from among you seven men of good repute, good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So there it is, those five practices. The fellowship was there. 
But the prayer and the, the ministry of prayer and the word was not thriving because, and the mission of the church was being undermined uh, because in this matter of breaking bread and remember Jesus and, and caring for one another it wasn't happening and so there's a breakdown. So they say we want to make sure that the word is still being preached because the good news creates the energy that will sustain us caring for one another but we also need to actually care for one another. So they gather the disciples and who are the people of good reputation? And here, a good reputation meant full of the spirit and wisdom. We're recognizing a godliness, a love for God, a faith in the gospel, fruitfulness in your life, and you're gaining the mind of Christ so you could be entrusted to lead because we don't want to create church structures that wind up being harmful and oppressive. We want spiritually mature people who are serving, not because they want prominence, but because they want missional effectiveness. And so that full number of disciples, there's a whole community Within this, is there anyone who can step up to leadership? Somebody spiritually mature, somebody wise. Um, and what's interesting, our church follows this pattern. If you notice, the apostles didn't say, boy, we're tired. Who do you want to work with? Let's go find them. They assembled the church and they say, look, you're the, you're the community. Who do you recognize as spiritually mature and wise? Well, let us know and we will set them apart for ministry. That's what our church happens to do. If you're part of our church regularly, you know that every May and June we say, by the way, we're nominating elders and mercy team, uh, our deacons, our servants. And so is there anyone in this community so that uh, we can make sure the preaching, the ministry of the word uh, and prayer continues? Are there people you're seeing, people of good reputation who are spiritually mature, who are wise? Who would you want? to be providing leadership. So nominate them, and then we will train them, and we'll come back and report if we recognize a readiness, but then at a congregational meeting, you vote. Voting doesn't feel very spiritual, but, but here it is. You are the ones that say, these are the people that we think should be stepping up and serving and leading, and we're gonna confirm that, and then after the people set forth these seven, the apostles lay their hands on them and prayed and set them apart, and so that's our process. Tell us who in the community should be providing that leadership and we will train them and confirm it for us and we will pray for them and send them off to that work. So we still follow that task. We, we follow a certain measure of organization. So there's a danger of being disorganized because disorganization leads to neglect. But there's always the danger of over-organizing which is creating such strict rules. And so this basic structure of, of making sure that there's a leadership in the church in the various areas so that we have sufficient organization without creating the kind of hierarchy that um, becomes about pride and, and showing off. So I wanna say a number of things on this. One is years ago it was more common I think than now but to use the language of, of not liking organized religion. I still think that language gets used and people still have the same issue. But it was a little bit trendy, I think, when people realized, oh, we have an option not to have to go to church because the whole of America does. We're now in the 1960s, 1970s. Uh, there's more freedom. We don't like organized religion. Now, there are good reasons and bad reasons for that. A bad reason would be, well, we don't want it organized because I want to leave my own spiritual life disorganized. <laughs> and therefore, I don't want anything that's going to challenge me. And so it's our own laziness and selfishness that doesn't like an organized religion because we don't want to have to get in sync. But there's also a concern about organized religion um, being hip hypocritical, uh, or religious institutions, um, instead of having a mission that heals, a mission that harms, and so the skepticism is understandable. But we have to recognize that, that between a uh, rules-based organization that functions like a corporation, or 
a spontaneous organic group that just sits around feeling good. <laughs> There's an option to say, if the spirit is in our work, how do we exercise wisdom to, to do life together to be in sync? And so very few people enjoy disorganized meals. So if you came over and I said, you know, it's, it's uh, one of my family's members' birthday, and, and we bring out eggs and some flour and some milk, and they say, what's this? And we say, it's a birthday cake. We're going to blow out the candles, but the candles are going to remain in the drawer. Uh, you might want the, to organize those elements into a cake. If I say this is a deconstructed birthday cake, that's uh, great for your graduate school paper, but terrible for your birthday uh, dinner. And so one response, you know, so, so using the food analogy, we take the elements and, and with wisdom, if we're able to combine them and put them together, the goal is to be eating a good meal, not so that we can brag about a great recipe, um, but you need that measure of organization and, and coming together. And so a disorganized church that says, I'm going to get to do what I want, I'm going to consume what I want, I'm going to do what makes sense to me, but I'm not going to work with others, I'm not going to come together in an effort, winds up being a church that's ineffective. I would rather not eat that birthday cake because I don't want to get the eggs all over my hands when I crack them. So with the food analogy, I think one of the things we're re responding to in our problems with institutional religion is processed religion, processed food. And so yes, something in a bag with a three-year exp expiration date that tastes really good, engineered to taste good, is wonderful. You could stick it in your pocket, you could have it three weeks later, it'll be more delicious than that raw broccoli that will be a little bit sharp if you don't cook it right and maybe cause some gaseous issues that could be embarrassing. And so that, that granola bar may be preferable and yet it's not as healthy. I think our response is not to organize religion, it's to process religion. It's saying we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna process this so it's just easy and tastes good and accessible and it's there when we want it. And over time people look and they say that, <laughs> yeah, it's there when I need it, but it's not really doing anything for me. It's not creating health. Real church community needs a certain measure of organization, not because we want to organize for organization's sake, but, but God forms communities of spirit-filled, gifted people. And if we're exercising our gifts in sync, the mission of the church will flourish. So here's something sec second that I'll say is we need to exercise wisdom in this. And so we want spirit-filled people, but, but we can't do everything and we can't do it randomly. Uh, so as an example, as we're talking today about mission and outreach, we have a, a group of leaders called the Mercy Team, our servants, our deacons. And we want to not only care for those in the church, as was happening here, but we want to care for our neighbors. And the needs of the city are enormous. A small church our size can't respond to every need. And we even can't respond to a few needs well. So we try to, to clarify what are we going to do. So for example, one thing we've said for years is we won't do a food pantry. Having a food pantry is a great way to serve your neighbors. Now, we don't own this building, so it's kind of hard for us to collect those goods and figure out how to distribute them. But another issue is, in the neighborhood, there's a number of food pantries. It may not be sufficient, but that resource is being provided. We've said, is there some way that we can use our limited energies in an investment in the future? And so, for example, in September, if you've been part of this church for the last few months, we've been talking about a new literacy program uh, that we're doing in cooperation with the people at the Grant Houses and with a ministry leader in the city. And so we want to uh, uh, invest in very young kids for the future of their education, thinking that that could really bring change to our neighborhood over time. But if you've been with us for the last two years, maybe you'd say, 
wait a second, didn't we do some food pantry stuff? <laughs> and that's the wisdom. It's not that we're against food pantry, but our, our thought at the time was a food pantry is not the most strategic use of our resources, but then in COVID, the supply chains broke down. And so now um, getting basic resources is not as easy. Then you have the single working parent who now has to choose between going to work and making money or being home so their kids could get their Zoom education. They choose to be home. Now they're not working. How are they eating? We realize as a Mercy team, um, right now the priority is to make sure people are eating. And so something that we hadn't been doing, we started doing. So in this own building, if you're part of the Columbia community or International House or Union or Manhattan School, you'll know that there's, there was this sudden evacuation. Get out of here quickly. Some of you may remember somebody at, uh, within the first week of COVID being a reality in New York, somebody at International House died. So there was a quick get out. And there were a number of students uh, in, in two square blocks that remained, but there was no food services for them. Um, and they were told, we don't want you going every day to the supermarket. You know, it was a confusing period. And so our Mercy team uh, worked with, with one of the offices here and we weekly provided food, not enough for the week, but enough for a few days that with some other resources, uh, there were 30 or 40 students that were able to be sustained for that period. There was a, a food pantry across the park and food pantries tend to give out boxed and canned food, but now people are really depending on them. The Mercy team said, why don't we provide fresh fruit and vegetables? And so for several months we were doing that, but that formed the kind of relationship that we realized maybe we should be bringing those resources to this side of the park. So every month we would do a pop-up food pantry where we served food to 100 families. That's a small, that's, you know, that's one building in apartment complexes. Uh, we weren't changing the world, changing the city, but we realized um, even though right now everything is hard, the mission of the church needs to continue. It's not convenient, but, but right now if people need to be fed, let's do something. And so what we did was not great, it was not amazing, but it made sure to say if there are people that might need food, let's, let's get out there and feed them. And so we needed to organize, we needed to get together and have leaders say things have changed. <laughs> let's revisit our values. How do we get food from someplace into the hands of people? It was a lot of work, but it was worth doing. Um, on that note, let me say something about being part of a denomination. So there's lots of reasons why people also don't like denominations. I understand that. Um, I'm not trying to argue anyone to become Presbyterian because our brand is better than anyone else. But one of the reasons denominations exist, yes, there's problematic reasons, but one of the reasons we exist is to create that organized network. And it allows for the mission of the church to have a bigger impact. And so, for example, on the topic of mission, the Presbyterian Church in America has two agencies, MNA and MTW, the M is for mission. Mission to North America, mission to the world. And so the idea is we will pull our resources so we could train people, we could financially support them, we can encourage them. Now, how is this useful? I'll give an example. When Russia invaded Ukraine, many of us came to church that Sunday with very heavy hearts. And we decided we were going to devote a time to praying for the people of Ukraine. And I came in the service still trying to organize my, my thoughts on how to pray. And a guy introduces himself, a Ukrainian guy. Um, and he was here for work. He was here for a couple of weeks. The invasion happened. His wife and daughter had to leave the country. And he was trying to figure out how to get back within the next couple of weeks and meet them. Now, why was he here? Why did he show up at Emmanuel of all of the churches in the city? He's an elder in a Presbyterian church in the Ukraine. 
uh, a church that was formed through the work of Mission to the World. And so here he was, apart from his family, he wound up coming here. Um, and, and now I have friends throughout the country, people that I went to seminary with, people that I've seen through the denomination. And there are all these PCA churches sending crates of supplies to the Ukraine. Now, how are we doing this? What happened is there was a small network, not many, I think there may have been four, I could be wrong on that, um, churches that MTW had, had helped to get started, that then when, when Russia invaded, uh, those ministry networks became key in helping lots of civilians get out of the country. And then those networks are now helping lots of people get supplies back in. And so the PCA is networking with churches in America to send supplies to Poland because there are people uh, that mission to the world are connected with that will then bring those supplies back into Ukraine. Um, we have to be careful to not let organization take over and with organization becomes policies and rules and every now and then we need to step back and make sure that, that we're being wise, that our priorities are right, that we're being effective, that we're catching ourselves with our problems. But there is something to a wise administration where the spirit works to say, let's, let's put our heads together and, and think of how to go out into the world to invite people and to serve them. And so uh, I'm trying to give some examples as, so that we as a community, as we continue to think about our practices, can say, yeah, we, we need to be intentional to a certain degree. We need to organize and have some kind of plan so that our small church has an outsized impact in our neighborhood, in our city. So the message of the Bible is not get organized. <laughs> the message of the Bible is believe the good news. Let grace work in your life. But God is going to leave you here to serve him. And so we organize our worship. We organize our ministries for greater effectiveness. And when we are doing that, uh, filled with the Spirit, announcing grace, then we see that multiplication happens, that the church is effective in welcoming people, in serving people. So that's the last thing I'm going to talk about is multiplication. So in the book of Acts, you know, Jesus in his ministry said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It starts so small, but then it becomes a growing tree that eventually the, the birds come and nest in. in. The book of Acts, things are growing very quickly, but it's still not mature. But that message about multiplication on the other side of this frustrating moment, because they handled it humbly and wisely, they got through that frustrating period so that God's work continued. So in verse 7, it says, the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So there it is. They had, they'd gotten to a point that they might start losing disciples. <laughs> And, and yet they stayed together and they cared for one another and the apostles were able to pray and proclaim. And so the disciples are increasing. People are being cared for. And so they're with wisdom in the spirit figuring it out. What I want to highlight from this verse, uh, perhaps an interesting, uh, one of the interesting phrases, because if you're reading the book of Acts, the fact that, that God's word is going forth, that, that disciples are happening, that's, that's been happening since the beginning of the book of Acts. Uh, but when it says that many priests became obedient to the faith, if we didn't have the book of Acts and only had the Gospels, and we didn't know after Jesus was raised what happened, you might think that um, here it was, the religious people in the Jewish community reject Jesus, and we have the Apostle Paul, and so, so the Gospel went forth to the nations, to people who did not know God. And the book of Acts helps us to see that actually the very community that rejected him 
becomes the community that God himself is working in the midst of. And it's not just a community because the hurting person, the widow, is a greater candidate to feel the credibility of the gospel minister. I don't know if I like your message, but if you're going to feed me today, I'm willing to show up. And so often people in their suffering are the ones who more easily are open to, to seeing God as a solution to their deep problems. What happens is sometimes we get so organized, even theologically, there are secular versions of this, but in the New Testament, the priests were very organized to the, to the very specific keeping of the letter of the law. That when Jesus came in their midst, they and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the other religious leaders, rather than recognizing Jesus as the presence of God and the fulfillment of all of the things they actually hoped for, in their own frustration, because Jesus comes to the first century frustrating situation uh, where they're under the Roman Empire, there are factions and parties within Judaism, Jesus shows up, and it's not surprising that frustrated people take out their frustration on him. We don't like you. Don't come into the mix. You're meddling with our system. We're, we're working hard to keep this together, and now we don't like what you're doing because you don't fit. And so what happens is they wind up rejecting him, but the nature of God is the very people who reject him are the people who need his forgiveness and grace. And so the invitation is still there, even to the people rejecting him. Now, um, what's interesting about the priests, the priests were a mediating community. Uh, the priests were precisely called by God to, to speak on God's behalf to the community. And they had kind of a healing role. You read Leviticus, and it's kind of like if you have a, a sore on your, your skin, who do you go to? You go to the priest. <laughs> And so, so, so there was a healing, serving aspect to the priest that on God's behalf they would serve the community, but then there was a worshiping component that people who were afraid to go before God in his holiness with all of their flaws, who's going to do that work and lead us in worship? Well, the priests were that mediating body. Um, in, in John, I'm going to read to you just a couple of verses here, um, a moment where it becomes clear that they're going to plot to kill Jesus. John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus, who had been dead something so remarkable. He was in the tomb for a few days that there was no denying. Only the work of God can explain what happened. And people are marveling, and yet there's a frustrated group trying to lead the people. And instead of joining in the marveling, they double down in their frustration. They start to plot against Jesus. And I'm going to read to you uh, from John 11:47. It said, so the chief priests, so the priests in charge and the Pharisees, gathered the council, so they're bringing their, this is a different kind of leadership meeting than Acts 6. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now that's understandable. They don't want that. You know, the Romans are already meddling. They're vulnerable here. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So interestingly enough, in their plot to kill him, the thought was, let's kill him so that if one person dies, the Romans will leave us alone, rather than getting behind this guy and having the Romans destroy us. So as a high priest, he gets in the plot to kill Jesus, thinking he's saying, wouldn't it be better if this one person dies than the whole nation? But then John gives his commentary. He said, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so we have in this moment uh, the high priest 
who speaks in his role, but he doesn't realize there's an irony that in joining the plot to kill Jesus, he's going to fulfill the scriptures, which is that one person would die not for the nation, but for the scattered people around the earth. And so in their frustration, they took the sin and all of the brokenness that was in their world and their community and their hearts and they were experiencing, and they said, we're going to cast it against this one guy and we're going to kill him. But what they didn't understand was Jesus was sent by the Father precisely for the person as the true and faithful high priest who, handing himself over to death, would be so that he wouldn't simply allow them to vent their hostilities, but he himself would bear them. That he would take this frustrated people and he would bear their frustration so that they would be free of it. That where they didn't recognize him and they rejected him, as time went on, they started to realize we completely misunderstood what he was doing. And as they're seeing this new community in the book of Acts, they're seeing the work that they were called to do as priests. Wait a second, we're to be that mediating community between God and humanity. Now there's this priesthood of all believers. Now there are people who know God and who have the spirit and are gaining wisdom and they're understanding the way God thinks so that their lives are bearing fruit and they're caring for and serving one another and they're gathering for worship. And the priests are starting to see the thing we've been trying to do all along is no longer happening with us, but it's happening with them. What a great mark of humility and change that a great many priests who would have to give up their profession, their identity, their standing in the community to say we see the work of God was happening where we didn't expect it. And we rejected him and yet he will still welcome us. He will still feed us. The community that we had persecuted will allow us to come in. And so it's that remarkable gospel of grace that says to each of us, we also organize our lives. And in New York, we tend to over-organize them. Because we want so much. We want great careers, and we want great experiences, and we want a great everything. That to do that, you have to really have an over-organized life. So then when, when God speaks in a word of correction, we find ourselves saying, in all of the frustration we're experiencing, stop, I can't take another correction. I'm, I'm having trouble keeping it all together. I have imposter syndrome. I'm afraid that I'm about to get fired. And then you want me to invite my coworker to church. <laughs> yeah, wonderful, no thank you. And there's this sense in which we've organized our lives so that God and his kindness and grace, when it comes into it, we, we feel greater resentment because we've organized our lives around things that are failing us. And then the goodness of the good news is not seen and tasted, it's seen as burdensome. <laughs> and that's where we need to go back to, why has God left a people here? It's a people who would continue to proclaim the same message. Don't change it, don't evolve it. Let's devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. But also to that fellowship where a community that believes these things is serving one another, and we're breaking bread and we're feeding one another such that it's not simply that we're so overwhelmed we're trying to get by, but but that God's grace is sufficient that we could open our doors and say, even if we don't know you, come. Come and be with God, with us. You don't understand Christianity, fine. You're not committed to it, that's okay, come and join us. And if you won't come, but you're hungry, we will, we'll try to find you and we'll feed you. You don't need to believe us. But that kind of dynamic, it's only the presence of God that can do that because in humanity, however we organize, always leads to frustration, division, bias, giving up. We never get to doing the good thing. One man, one high priest came, and he did the good thing. We rejected him. But he turned things upside down that we, when we cast our hostilities on him, he flooded his grace into us. 
And when we grasp that, that God welcomes us, he forgives us, you don't need to understand, you could have made lots of mistakes, come and be in the presence of God and, and be in the fellowship of his people, study his word and gain his ways, uh, break bread and remember what Jesus has done, seek him in prayer, and he will leave you here, even if your life is still frustrated, <laughs> so that not only you will begin to thrive, but your presence will help others whose frustration is terminal, your future is now hopeful. Get through this tough period. But you have friends and neighbors who are losing hope. And so where is the energy to love them? Um, these five practices hang together. So if you've been here for the series in the beginning, I said it's not that there are five practices and we need to have 20% of each in our lives. The Christian life is dynamic, but if you're lacking one of the five, two of the five, this is not an auction and I don't want you to feel guilty, but how many of you are lacking three of the five? If we were to take a raise of hands, we might have a few people walk out the door saying, I'm doing nothing right now. Sure, um, life is frustrating. The church is not perfect. The Bible is hard to read. But what we're told is because God is good, if we, if we start listening to him, if we start living life with him, if we join with his people to encourage that, if we remember Christ, and if we're willing to say, I will probably grow personally if I'm serving and loving others, those five things create the kind of organized system. And we don't need to work out all of the details, but, but, but examine your life. And that's what we try to do as a church every couple of years. How are we doing in each of these five areas? You may be gifted in really one, so you're giving 60% to that. That's wonderful. But you need the others in your life. And so as a church, every now and then we need to stop and say, have we gotten out of balance? Are we doing one thing really well and we're neglecting the others? Is there something we're not doing at all? One of the reasons, so we're ending on mission, one of the reasons we want to have this life of God in us is not simply because of the satisfaction we have of having that hope and having strength, but to know that one of the purposes for which God has left us in this world is to continue to live in that good news, to proclaim it and to embody it with the hope that uh, he will still add to his number in the 21st century. So, friends, let's give ourselves to that work. Let me pray for us. Our Father, as we gather together this morning, we are an imperfect people, but we come before a perfect God. We are a failing people, but we come before a God who never fails us. And so, Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself for us, who bears our frustration, who calls us to a whole different way of being. And, Lord, you feed us and you teach us and you strengthen us, but you also send us back into the world so that your grace goes with us. Lord, help us as a church not to neglect anything that we should be doing, but help us to be effective in loving our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members. Lord, help us also to love one another, and where we're failing in that now, Lord, give us the wisdom and the maturity to know how to step back into one another's lives so that we're absorbing frustration rather than creating it. Lord, we know that has to be a work of grace, and so we pray for it. Give us eyes to see you doing it and sustain us so that we would love one another and love you well, so that we thrive, but also uh, we're a light and that we serve as salt within our community. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.